this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath the 22nd edition of the fifa men's world cup will kick off in qatar on november 20th the month long tournament is one of the biggest sporting events on the planet followed by millions around the world but this year's event has been dogged by controversy ever since qatar won the hosting rights back in 2010 there have been allegations that qatar bribed fifa officials in order to win the bid to host the event the host country has also faced criticism on its human rights track record treatment of migrant workers and sexual inequality and discrimination for their part qatari officials have termed all the criticism as unfair and hinted that it is hypocritical so how did a tiny gulf nation with hardly any soccer tradition so to speak end up hosting the world cup what's in it for qatar why were they so desperate to be the hosts and will the criticisms of qatar overshadow the event itself as for the sport how do the 32 teams this this is going to be the last time i think we are going to have a 32 team world cup stack up and to answer all these questions we have with us n sudarshan from the hindus sports bureau sudarshan thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me here so sudarshan i mean when we think of fifa we for a long time we used to think of this guy called sepp blatter he was a fifa president when qatar won the hosting rights back in 2010 and now he has called it a mistake to give the world cup to qatar So do you think do you agree with him that it is a mistake to have Qatar host the 2022 World Cup can you give us some kind of a quick background on how Qatar ended up hosting it and why so many people are calling it a mistake and if you agree with that sure so latter like you said was the president when the decision to award the world cups to both Russia in 2018 and Qatar in 2022 were made if you actually observe it closely blatter didn't exactly say that it's a mistake to hold the tournament in Qatar because of the various bribery allegations or the human rights concerns that are being raised but his whole point was that it was too small a country to host the world cup so it was limited to that so i would say it's both right as well as wrong because if you want to grow the world cup if you want to grow the game and want to get the world cup to different areas then the arab world was one of the areas where it was not held before so that's a right thing to do it there but there is also some uh, truth to the criticism because qatar as you know is a very small state and it can't necessarily hold so many people at a time uh, question things into which we'll go later but like you say since the day the thing was awarded to qatar it has been mired in controversies because even the vote was said to have been uh, influenced heavily by uh, bribery because it was decided by a 14 to 8 vote and in an executive com- committee of 24 even before the vote to didn't make it to the vote because of bribery allegations so it has been mired in all sorts of controversies since then and it was also because there is a back story to it four votes from uefa under the influence of michel platini who was then the uefa president was in favor of qatar and days later we saw that qatari owners purchased paris saint germain which is the biggest team in france club team in france so there was also pressure that was apparently put by the french president so there's there's been all sorts of uh, controversies and bribery allegations since qatar was uh, awarded the world cup and those have not sort of died down until now 
Right, and uh, why is it that Qatar was so desperate to be the host? Uh, to they going to the extent of you know uh, doing things which have led to these kinds of allegations? Uh, it has been a long-standing project of uh, Qatar to actually grow sporting-wise, and you can see that you have, I think, for Rio Olympics, I think a record forty number of uh, Qatari nationals, so to speak, qualified for the game. So they have had sports as one of their foreign policies of soft power so uh, you can see a lot of uh, naturalized uh, qatari citizens taking part in these so called multi sport events representing their nation so and also they are big in tv marketing now being sports is owned by the qatari royal family which has pretty much the football rights in the west in western asia and parts of europe so these are all tools for them to actually project their national identity worldwide buying of paris saint germain signing neymar signing messi so these are all parts of their projects to project their national identity in a better way right now coming to the actual uh, controversy about uh, human rights violations and treatment of migrant workers in qatar and so on so these these kinds of violations and abusive practices have been going on for a long time and qatar won the hosting rights in 2010 so did it make any commitment at the time of winning the bid that it's going to you know tackle all these violations and abuses and sort of you know therefore uh, were their expectations built on such a commitment or is it like people are just randomly waking up and saying look at qatar today and all that like why is this expectation that qatar should have sort of remedied its human rights practices and a treatment of migrant workers and therefore why this uh, this outrage that it has not done so when the world cup was actually awarded there were voices which actually said that qatar is not the ideal host considering all these uh, human rights issues that were going, that were there but fifa very interestingly didn't even pay heed to any of these because in their bid assessment document like when they, when countries submit their bids and fifa assesses those bids they apparently made just a stray line saying 6000 odd migrant workers will be needed but they made no requests to the qatari side as if how they should be treated what are the issues what are the human rights things they will be concerned with so this this is what the reporting suggests that they just made a cursory mention about the number of migrant workers who would be needed but absolutely nothing on their state their how they are taken care of and things like that so these have, issues have been there since then and fifa didn't ask for uh, commitments and I was in Doha in 2016 and uh, there was pressure being put on uh, Qatar to actually reform their uh, wages reform how they hand out these migrant work permits and all and but the organizing committee were like yes we are improving but it will be very slow and they made the argument that even Europe didn't change overnight so that was their whole uh, idea but it was very slow and things are improving i would say but they are extremely so like we had to wait until 2020 for them to introduce a higher minimum wage and the long standing practice in qatar was to have something called the kafala system so where each worker any domestic worker is prohibited from changing jobs freely he has to ask for the present employer's permission to change jobs so this was seen as highly restrictive and the international labor organization got involved and for this to be abolished it took them time till 2020 so there have there were issues fifa didn't pay heed to them there have been improvements but they have been very slow 
Right. Now, what has been the response of the football, uh, the soccer community globally towards uh, this entire issue? I mean, we have read, for instance, reports of the Australian football team releasing a video condemning Qatar's uh, human rights violations and track record. So, how have football fans and players in general uh, reacted to the human rights restrictions and uh, restrictions on civil liberties and so on? Because we know, for instance, also that I think former Germany captain, I think Philip Lamb has also said he's not going to be uh, visiting uh, Qatar for the World Cup. And a few other players have also done so, but others have been a little bit more sort of diplomatic about it. So, what has been the general trend? I think the most vociferous support, like you said, uh, has been from countries like Australia, the European nations, uh, Germany, Norway, and Netherlands have voiced these human rights concerns for a good time now. Because I think the Danish uh, Football Federation even asked its uh, players uh, to wear shirts which said human rights for all, and FIFA ultimately said you can't do it. So, because world uh, governing body prohibits uh, political messages and uh, Curiously, they asked the teams to just focus on the football. So that was the official communication, which was uh, interesting. But uh, we have seen uh, uh, players and coaches take clear stands. The English player, captain uh, Harry Kane, and nine other captains of all European teams will actually wear the what are called the One Love armbands in a message against discrimination against LGBTQ community. And the Dutch coach Van Hall has been vociferous in his statements that this World Cup shouldn't have been held here at all. Again, due to these multiple reasons like human rights, too small a country, and then going in and out of the country. So, I think coaches and players have been pretty uh, vociferous in their uh, criticism of the World Cup uh, venue in Qatar, but they have been mostly restricted to European nations and countries like Australia. Right. Now, coming to the actual logistics and the infrastructure uh, which are needed for hosting an event of this magnitude, I mean, Qatar apparently had just one football stadium when it won the bid and it has never qualified for a World Cup. I think no other country has sort of got hosting rights without qualifying qualifying for the World Cup even once. Can you talk a little bit about the progress Qatar has made since then in terms of infrastructure building and other related aspects? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like you said, I think the Khalifa Stadium was the only one proper stadium that was standing when the bid was announced in favor of Qatar. I think the Khalifa Stadium was built in 1976, if I'm not wrong. So, what happens in these FIFA events is generally FIFA burdens, I would say, countries with developing very, very new infrastructure. So, that's what we saw both in South Africa where stadium, stadiums actually went into disuse after that. And also in Brazil, where the stadiums were be asked to build for one or two matches. So this has been a long-standing criticism with uh, FIFA. And with Qatar, initially it was 12 stadiums to be built, out of which 11 were to be new. And then they negotiated to get it down to 8, out of which 7 are new. The one is what you mentioned, the Khalifa Stadium. So since then, they have actually built seven brand new stadiums. But one interesting thing that Qatar said it would do is just so that a lot of these resources are not wasted, some of the stadiums will be dismantled. Like, for example, the 974 stadium. It's called 974 because that's the Qatar's uh, dialing code. So, which is being built with a lot of remains of ship containers. So, that stadium is going to be dismantled and they even said they would sell parts of it to developing countries where they can improve their infrastructure. And this is actually some first-hand information I also got when I was in 2016 in Doha for the AFC Cup. So this is what they have done. And it is also one of the 
smallest World Cups, I would say, geographically, because unlike Brazil, where countries were traveling thousands of miles and thousands of kilometers to actually get to different venues, here the farthest distance between the northernmost and the southernmost uh, stadiums is going to be just 70 kilometers. So they also built a state-of-the-art metro network connecting seven of these eight stadiums. So you can watch multiple matches in a day. You can crisscross at very reasonably, uh, I mean, very less time and uh, less expenses. So they opened this in 2019. So apart from that, they have developed their own airports, ports, and things like that. So infrastructure-wise, it's been pretty, I would say, smooth because they have the money to execute it and they had the time to do it as well. But it has also taken a huge toll. Like this World Cup is being toted as uh, the cost is in excess of 200 billion. I think the last World Cup in Russia was held for uh, 15. And then before that, South Africa, sorry, Brazil was also 15 billion. So there is easily 10 to 15 times the cost. So if this becomes the benchmark, who else can aspire to host the World Cup in the next uh, coming years is a question. Right. You, you spoke earlier about Qatar being a very tiny country and that could be, that was perhaps the reason why I said Blatter said it may not be uh, the right choice. And then coming to the population, it's just uh, 3 million people. And when uh, when the World Cup starts, I mean, there's going to be an influx of about 1 million fans is what the estimate is, which is equal to one third of its population. So where are all these people going to stay? How are they going to you know, find transportation and things like that? How is it going to be really chaotic or, does, or, or is everything in place uh, for the tourists? And I'm sure lots of people are going to be going from India, especially Kerala and Goa as well. Yeah, I think people have found it tough. Even the Dutch coach, Louis Van Hall, said uh, his family and friends are trying, finding it difficult to get uh, places for accommodation and things like that. So, but... Like you said, they had to create infrastructure for so many people and they have built hotels and uh, they have built these uh, 2,000 bed temporary villages and I think they have also organized a couple, three or four cruise ships where it can house 6,000 guests each. So they have they have had to find all these uh, innovative solutions, but it's been tough to actually find accommodation and things like that. So, where fans will really miss out is like unlike in other World Cups where even if you don't get a match ticket, people do go there to experience, to revel in the atmosphere, soak in the atmosphere and things like that. But during this World Cup period, Qatar has actually said only those people who have a valid match ticket and a pre-booked hotel can actually enter the country. And for those people who do have tickets who are in the neighboring countries, initially they proposed, there was a proposal to join Saudi and Bahrain near the border areas through trains so that those fans can actually come in and out and not just stay in Qatar because that would be difficult. So because of the economic blockade and things like that, those plans didn't materialize at all. So now they have to come to the border. They'll be picked up in buses, transported to the stadiums and dropped back. So these are the kind of things that they have had to do. But uh, like you said, the concerns are very real. A lot of people have not been able to find accommodations. I think a couple of my friends uh, tried to get accommodations and even those that were available were extremely expensive. I heard one one uh, report say that one bed in the uh, temporary village that they have built 
cost close to $200 per night. So that is just insanely expensive. So these are the challenges which are very real. Right. I mean, you spoke about, you know, how even if a fan doesn't get a ticket to a match, they could just soak in the atmosphere. And speaking of soak in the atmosphere, usually these kinds of things tend to happen in bars and pubs, you know, with big screens and so on. And with, of course, uh, lots of beer drinking happening and so on. But Qatar is, as we know, a conservative Muslim nation and there is very limited and controlled access to alcohol. And beer drinking, as you know, is a traditional World Cup uh, watching activity. So how is this contradiction going to be dealt with? Are there going to be like like separate enclosures where you go and drink beer? Like how is it going to be managed? So like you said, this is a big contradiction because Budweiser is one of FIFA's biggest sponsors. It has a multi-million dollar contract with uh, FIFA. And every FIFA event, Budweiser can sell its products and it it can, it has a certain exclusivity that only it can sell those uh, beer products. So, but like you said, Qatar is a conservative Muslim nation. So they they seem to have arrived at a uh, middle path where alcohol will be banned inside the stadiums, but outside stadiums you will have something called the beer stations where visitors will be able to purchase beer, and there will be fan zones where people can drink and. Alcohol is not totally banned in Qatar, but it's just available in select areas inside hotels and things like that. So they had made an exception for Budweiser, the FIFA sponsor, to sell beers in these beer stations that are earmarked outside the stadiums. Now, latest reports as of Friday now suggest that there has been a rethink from the Qatari side to even allow those beer stations. So they want it to be hidden from the public uh, at some remote corner where people cannot see because they fear that the local population may turn against them for allowing alcohol. But FIFA is now in a very tricky situation because they can't say don't sell beer because it is one of the biggest sponsors. And also like a lot of European tourists and things like that, beer drinking is a part of their uh, culture uh, while watching football. We have seen uh, a lot of, I have personally seen beer being uh, consumed inside the stadium also. There's absolutely been no bar on it. So, this is a contradiction that they will have to uh, resolve. But as of Friday, it doesn't look like it's going to be resolved uh, that easily. But that said, uh, I think there has to be some uh, concern for the local sentiments as well. Because unlike, say, universal human rights and things like that, beer drinking is more of a cultural thing. So. Uh, some countries might allow it, some countries might not allow it. So there needs to be a proper middle path rather than each of them holding on to their respective extreme positions. I'm sure many beer drinkers would want to argue that beer drinking is also a human right, a universal human right. But anyway, but apart from this, uh, and I would of course want those beer stations in place come what may, but apart from these alcohol-related restrictions, there are also some other restrictions about uh, people not wearing revealing clothes and uh, shoulders to be covered and all that. And it's going to be pretty hot, right? I mean, Europeans coming from, I don't know, Scandinavia and, and you're telling them you ought to have your shoulders covered. How is that going to work? Yeah, I think it is going to be hotter than their normal uh, temperatures. I think uh, November temperatures in uh, Doha and uh, areas will uh, actually hover around 27 to 28 degrees centigrade is what was my uh, understanding when I went there last time. But yeah, there have been reports of these, but the Qatari side's explanation for everything has been that all are welcome, all are welcome. So they are not actually specifically giving assurances that this, this, this will be allowed, but there are being 
there are these stray incidents uh, being reported, like one media organization not being allowed to report somewhere, or people being asked to change their clothes or wear certain types of clothes and things like that. So there, there have been reports, but uh, the Qatari side has not really come out and said this specifically that these things will be allowed and these things will not be allowed. They seem to be just saying, yeah, everything is fine, everything is fine. So that has been their response. So we need to see how it plays out closer to the start of the World Cup. Right. Now, coming actually to the footballing aspect, finally. So we have, we know which which are the 32 teams and we know who is in which group. So who do you think are the favourites uh, this year and how do you assess the chances of the defending champions, France, and of course, uh, the eternal favourites, uh, Brazil, uh, Germany and Italy, of course, is not there. So, what is what are your thoughts on on the favorites for making the semi-finals? Now, personally, uh, looking at the player roster and on paper, uh, the player names, uh, I feel Brazil has the best squad among uh, all teams to actually win the World Cup. If this squad cannot win it, I don't know which squad will because it's a, it's a, a team brimming with talent. They have two players for every position. And they also had to leave out players like Firmino of uh, Liverpool because they couldn't accommodate him or because his form was slightly not so good as compared to the players who actually made it. So, Brazil, I personally, I feel on paper, they seem the favourites. France has huge depth like Brazil, but they are also missing two of their World Cup winners in uh, N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba who Paul Pogba especially tends to do very well in international tournaments for France and he was their best player even at the 2020 Euro. So, missing both those sure start starters in the midfield can prove a bit of a problem for France, I would say, but they do have two of the best attackers in the world in Kylian Mbappe and uh, Karim Benzema. Karim Benzema actually has returned to the squad after a long time and he would be very raring to go in the World Cup. And Mbappe, like we all know, just mesmerized the whole in the 2018 World Cup. So, I think he is someone to be watched out for. Uh, other than that, I would say that uh, Germany has a good uh, team, but they have been severely underperforming in the last two international competitions. So, say they would be ready to go. England has a decent team, but they have not had a good build-up to the World Cup. Uh, but they do have a good team to play and they are also the finalists from the uh, last Euro. And Spain has a very young, and I would say it is a good mix of both young and uh, experience and a top coach. And Netherlands is back uh, this time after missing out uh, last year. But I'm not sure if they have a World Cup winning team. But that's what we thought in 2014 as well. But they made the semi-finals. They have a superb tactician in Louis Van Gaal. So I would say uh, these are the teams that we can uh, genuinely look out for. And also Senegal, the African Cup of Nations champion. Uh, they are there, but... Not sure if they are World Cup winning material, but their top player, Sadio Mane, is there. He is carrying some fitness concerns, but they, they are also another team to watch out for. And of course, finally, Uruguay, that small nation, South American nation, which actually produces so many superb players, Edison Cavani and things like that, and uh, Luis Suarez. And of course, Messi would uh, want to sign off with a World Cup win. And he finally, he has a team that can actually deliver. So, we'll see how that goes. So, you didn't say much about Argentina as one of the favourites. It's almost like an afterthought. You don't have high hopes from them. 
I do have high hopes on them, but uh, I, I think I missed the order. So sorry. <laughs> okay. So what about the host see uh, host team, uh, Sudarshan? Because they've never qualified. They've had just ten years to build a solid team uh, which can at least be competitive. So like, how do you see them performing? Are they going to be like ten nil, six nil score lines, or are they going to be competitive? And like, do they have how good is their team really? I don't think it will be uh, lopsided against them because they are the reigning Asian champions. So they did win the Asian Championship in 2019, beating fancy team uh, Japan in the final. Japan were four-time winners and going for the record fifth uh, championship, but Qatar won it. Now there is there is a curious twist to this because, like I mentioned before, uh, Qatar naturalizes a lot of its players. Like they are all born or of different backgrounds. And they are all given Qatari passports to play for them. So their uh, team is actually decent because the one they won the Asian Championship, like I said, and they have some pretty good players. Like there's a forward called uh, Akram Afif who played under Shavi uh, Hernandez, the Barcelona coach, at Al Saad, which is a Qatari-based uh, club. And they also have another forward called Almoz Ali, who scored a record nine goals in the Asian Cup. So they do have players. Now, who are those players? They are all of Yemeni, Sudanese, Bahrain, Egyptian descent. So they they always they are all most of them are naturalized Qatari players. So they do have a decent team, and I'm, I don't think it will be those uh, lopsided uh, scores. And they have a coach who knows them pretty well, Felix Sanchez, who has been in Qatar since 2006. He has progressed to the youth teams and things like that. So. He knows Qatari football pretty well. He knows his players pretty well. And he has been with the team for long. So I wouldn't actually discount them from performing decently. I don't know if they'll get out of the group. But to me personally, I don't think there'll be those lopsided scores against them. Right. One final question before we wrap up. So, Darshan, what, what about the star players, the highest goal scorers, etc.? Who's going to light up this uh, World Cup through individual brilliance? Like, who do we look out for? The individual stars at this World Cup... I think it will be driven by these three people, Messi, Neymar and Ronaldo. For Messi and Neymar and Ronaldo, this is in all probability their last World Cups. They would want to sign off on a good note. I don't know if, uh, I don't think Portugal has a World Cup winning squad. They do have uh, super players apart from Ronaldo in uh, Bernardo Silva, uh, Bruno Fernandes and things like that. And then Messi finally has a good team around him and they also won the Copa America recently, which broke a long trophy drought. So, I think Messi will be really raring to go. And Argentina, I think, are unbeaten in some 30-odd international games coming into the World Cup. So, they should be good and Messi will be their star. And Neymar, of course, who has given mixed signals about playing the next World Cup. So, he would want to finally get on the World Cup winning uh, bandwagon because I think in 2014, when they were humiliated by Germany, he was not there. He was injured. In 2018 also, they played decently but they couldn't uh, do much and of course there's Mbappe and uh, there are Benzema and uh, Kevin De Bruyne at Belgium is another star who can literally change matches uh, single-handedly uh, I, I mentioned uh, Sadio Mane of Senegal and there are all these uh, big players who play for big European countries uh, European clubs who are actually leading their their own sm- smaller footballing nations like Lewandowski is uh, Poland Poland's Lewandowski and then uh, Korea's uh, Hyun Son, uh, Hyun Son, and then England's uh, Harry Kane. But I would have a special eye on Vinicius Junior for uh, Brazil. 
he has been superb for real madrid in the past uh, two years and uh, he was signed as a very young uh, player by real madrid for big money and he has uh, really come off age i would say in the last two years and so this world cup he can he can really explode in the world stage Right. Thank you so much, Sudarshan. I mean, it's going to be, uh, I think that most people would be looking forward to sort of moving beyond uh, the various controversies and getting to the actual uh, events, so to speak, on the pitch itself. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, insights and your list of favorites. We all look forward to watching the World Cup. Maybe come back and do more analysis once again towards the end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sampath. It was a pleasure being here. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.